0: A FOCUSED SUMMARY OF CHAPTERS 21 AND 22 OF FRANKENSTEIN Frankenstein was brought before the magistrate, who looked on him severely, and then called forth witnesses. One deposed that he, his son, and his brother-in-law had been out fishing the night before. Walking along the sands, he had come upon the body of a man who appeared to be dead— they thought the man had drowned and washed up on shore, but the body was neither cold nor wet. They carried him to the nearby cottage of an old woman and discovered that he was young and handsome. Finger marks on his neck suggested that he had been strangled. At the mention of finger marks, Frankenstein recalled the murder of his brother and became extremely agitated. The magistrate observed this, and saw in it an indication of guilt. The brother-in-law then testified that at the moment they discovered the body, he saw a boat with a single man in it a distance from the shore, and that it was the same boat in which Frankenstein had landed. The old woman deposed that an hour prior she had seen that boat push off from the part of the shore where the body was found. Others were examined who surmised that because a strong wind had arisen during the night, Frankenstein was forced to return to the same spot from which he had departed. Mr. Kerwin, the magistrate, asked that Frankenstein be brought into the room where the corpse lay, so that he might observe the effect it produced upon him. To his horror, there Frankenstein saw the lifeless form of Henry Clerval, and throwing himself on the body, he exclaimed, Have my murderous machinations deprived you also, my dearest Henry, of life? Afterward, he became delirious with fever, and for two months he lay on the point of death, raving about his responsibility for the murders and his desperation to destroy the fiend. Reflecting to Walton on this most miserable time, he cannot explain why he did not die. But two months later, he awoke in a prison cell, and groaned as the memory of all that had happened returned. The old woman hired to be his nurse, discovering that he had recovered, told him it probably would have been better for him to die. Frankenstein soon learned that Mr. Kirwin had shown him kindness, giving him the best room in the prison, providing a nurse, and seeing to it that he was not neglected but feeling himself the most miserable of mortals, he was on the point of confessing to the murder and taking the penalty of the law when Mr. Kerwin came to see him. Frankenstein was surprised when Kerwin described sympathetically how he had been thrown on their shore, charged with murder, and then confronted with the discovery that the victim was his friend. Kerwin revealed that he had found in Frankenstein's possession several letters— including one to his father, and that he had reached out to his father instantly. He then told Frankenstein that a friend had come to see him. Frankenstein, believing the monster had come to mock at him, cried in agony to take him away. Kerwin, who saw this too as a presumption of guilt, said severely that he thought he would have been glad to see his father. At the discovery that it was his father who had arrived, his terrible anguish relaxed into a great pleasure, and Kerwin, believing Frankenstein had suffered a relapse of delirium, resumed his benevolence. Frankenstein stretched his hand to his father, asked after his family, and was given reassurances of their welfare. Looking at the wretched room and lamenting the death of poor Clerval, his father remarked that some fatality seemed to pursue him. With the appearance of his father, Frankenstein recovered his health, but the death of Clerval meant that he would be forever absorbed in a gloomy and black melancholy. He went on living only to fulfill his destiny. When he had executed the award of justice, he would sink into death. After three months in prison, Frankenstein was obliged to travel to the court, but there was no trial, since it had been proven that he was on the Orkney Islands when the murder was committed. Frankenstein's father was enraptured that his son had been freed of these charges and could travel home. But for Frankenstein, a dungeon or palace were alike hateful, and he found himself tormented by watchful eyes— those of Clerval languishing in death, or those of the monster as he first saw them open in his Ingolstadt chamber. Frankenstein's father tried to awaken in him feelings of affection with talk of family and of home, but all his recollections of happiness were interrupted by paroxysms of despair, and he had to be restrained from putting an end to his own life but one duty remained to him—to return to Geneva, look after his family, and lie in wait for the murderer so that he might put an end to his existence. On the vessel home he lay on the deck looking at the stars while the events of the past appeared to him in the light of a frightful dream, and he wept bitterly. He had been in the custom of taking laudanum every night "'and now he doubled his dose "'and fell into a profound but still troubled sleep. "'He dreamed of the fiend's fingers around his neck "'while groans and cries rang in his ears "'until his father, perceiving his agitation, awoke him. "'The monster was not there, "'and a momentary sense of security returned. "'They landed in Paris,' where they would rest so Frankenstein could recover his strength. His father sought erroneous methods to ease his sufferings, not understanding the cause of his ills. He encouraged his dear Victor to seek amusement in society, while Victor felt he had no right to share their intercourse, and believed they would hunt him from the earth if they knew of his crimes." His father thought perhaps he felt a wounded pride over having been charged with murder. But Victor asserted, on the contrary, that he had no pride, and that William, Justine, and Henry did die by his hands. His father attributed these ravings to delirium. He entreated with him never to make such assertions again, but Victor insisted that though he would have shed his own blood to save their lives— He was the assassin of those innocent victims. Victor longed to confide his fatal secret, but he knew he would be supposed mad, and besides, he did not wish to fill his confessor with unnatural horror. His father could only conclude that Victor's ideas were deranged, and he desisted from speaking of Victor's misfortunes. A few days before they left Paris, Victor received a letter from Elizabeth. In it, she said that she dare no longer postpone writing something she had often wished to express, but never had the courage. She conjured him to answer, for the sake of the happiness of them both, whether he loved another. Given his evident unhappiness, and given that he had travelled and lived abroad for many years, she thought perhaps that he had fallen in love with someone else. And had come to regret the connection to her that he was bound by honor to fulfill. She assured him that their marriage would render her miserable unless it were the dictate of his free choices, and that she could not bear to be an obstacle to his happiness. She begged him not to let her letter disturb him, and vowed to wait patiently for his answer. This letter revived in Victor's memory the monster's promise that he would be with him on his wedding night he resolved that on that night a deadly struggle would take place and he would either die or be free but his freedom would be a tortured one with the treasure of possessing elizabeth balanced by horrors of remorse and guilt to marry elizabeth soon would be to hasten his fate but since he had no assurances that the monster was bound to peace in the meantime he resolved that the marriage would take place immediately upon his return. He wrote to Elizabeth with assurances that all the happiness that remained to him on earth was centered in her. But, he said, he had a dreadful secret that he would confide to her the day after their marriage took place, so that there could be perfect confidence between them. A week later they arrived in Geneva— and Elizabeth greeted him with warm affection and with tears at the sight of his emaciated frame. Memory brought madness, and he became possessed again by an insanity and despondency that only Elizabeth could ease. Victor told his father to let the day be fixed for his marriage to Elizabeth, and said he would consecrate himself to her happiness in life or death. His father pleaded with him not to speak of death, and to let the misfortunes that had befallen them cause them only to cling closer to those who remain. Victor then confesses to Walton that if he had for an instant understood the hellish intentions of his adversary, he would have banished himself to wander a friendless outcast over the earth rather than consent to his marriage. As the wedding day approached, Victor felt his heart sink within him, but he tried as well as he could to shut up in his heart the anxiety that preyed there. Meanwhile, he took every precaution to defend himself in case the fiend should attack, carrying pistols and a dagger constantly about him. He began even to regard the threat as a delusion, and to believe in the possibility of happiness. Elizabeth, Calmed by his manner, seemed happy herself. But on the day of their wedding, a presentiment of evil pervaded her. After the ceremony, they started off on a honeymoon to Lake Como. These moments, enjoying the beauty of the scene along the lake, were the last in his life during which he enjoyed a feeling of happiness. Elizabeth endeavored to be happy but her joy continually gave place to distraction and reverie. As the sun sank in the heavens and they touched the shore, Victor felt revive in him the fears that would soon cling to him forever.